0: Today is a Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday prior to Good Friday, which is prior to Easter. And in the scriptures in the New Testament, this was the day when King Jesus approached the holy capital city of Jerusalem and declared his kingship to the world. And in some respects, Palm Sunday is a lot like an engagement party. It's not the wedding but it anticipates a wedding Palm Sunday is a lot like a baby shower. It doesn't actually mark the birth of the child, but it anticipates that a child is on the way Palm Sunday is kind of like a bridal shower, anticipating a wedding, celebrating love between a man and a woman. Uh, Palm Sunday is an opportunity for us to prepare for us to anticipate, for us to look forward to what God has in store for us as we worship him and celebrate him through the events of what we now call Easter. But at the same time, in Palm Sunday, there is hope to be found. There's, there's a message, there's a meaning, there's a story to be told, on that Palm Sunday that is meant to give us hope during this Holy Week. So this morning marks the beginning of a three-part series that I intend to preach, Lord willing, called Hope for Holy Week. And during this season of the year, uh, we want to turn our eyes upward and we want to renew our hope and increase our hope in the giver of hope, and the giver of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Palm Sunday teaches us to be thankful. It teaches us to praise God as we consider his mighty works in our lives. So if you have a Bible, and I trust that you do, find your way to the gospel of Luke. All the way over to the 19th chapter. We're going to look at Luke chapter 19, verses 37 to 40, and I've entitled my sermon today, Three Cheers for Jesus. We're going to give it up for Jesus this morning as we celebrate his spectacularness, his awesomeness, and the hope that we can actually and literally find in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read the whole portion of Scripture to you, and then we'll go back and kind of dissect it and and break it down into some bite-sized pieces. So Luke chapter 19, verse 37 reads, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works. Listen to this, that they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now the context here is the triumphal entry. So leading up to this in the same chapter, we have this description of events where Jesus tells his disciples to go ahead into the town, find a colt that had never been ridden, bring it out. He jumps on the colt and he rides it into the holy city. And as he goes, people take off their clothes, their cloaks, and they take palm branches off the trees and they lay them out on the road before Jesus. And he walks over them. And all the time they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Glory to God in the highest. They were treating Jesus like a conquering king who had just come back from battle against a mighty foe and redeemed and rescued the people of God from imminent attack. Now, we don't normally put kings into place using these particular means, but this would have been understood To the ancient listener of the word recorded and to the participant in that ancient event as a declaration by Jesus that he was claiming to be the king of Israel. So, this is the, these are the events that lead up to this particular portion of scripture. Now, Jesus is coming closer, verse 37 says. And by the way, it's interesting. It says he's already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So the geography of Jerusalem is is on a hill and there's a valley beside it. And then up the side of the other uh, hill is the Mount of Olives. So you kind of have to go down in order to go up. It's within visual distance. Jesus is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And it's into this event that the Bible says a multitude, meaning many, 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 many people, a large crowd, a multitude of who? A multitude of disciples. We often think of Jesus having his 12 immediate disciples, but in fact, there were many other sort of secondary disciples. They weren't necessarily in his small group, his core group, but there were many other hundreds of people that followed Jesus around on his various journeys and learned from him. And so here we have this multitude of Jesus disciples expressing in this text, their heavenly hope in the messianic King. This wasn't just some delusional loner laying down his garment for Jesus, taking off his clothing for Christ and putting it out on the ground before him. This was a multitude of people. You see many had seen through the eyes of faith the true identity of Jesus and the significance of this monumental event, which God's people have been waiting for for a long time. Now, remember I said that engagement parties, bridal showers, baby showers anticipate something that is to come. Palm Sunday anticipates something that is to come, but what's the next event that comes after Palm Sunday? It's the crucifixion. It's the brutal death, the torture, the capital execution of Jesus Christ. Why in the world would we gather to celebrate and to commemorate that? How is it possible for this multitude? How is it possible for us to have hope and to experience joy and anticipation when something bad and nasty is about to happen. The question on the table is, why hope when things look bleak? Why celebrate when things look dark? By the way, this is a super relevant question for us, given our current circumstances. We're living during difficult days, challenging times. How is it possible for us as people of faith to have hope when things look bleak? Well, a careful study of this text reveals several answers to us. Put your eyes back on verse 37. Here's what we learn in verse 37. This is why we can hope when things look bleak. Number one, we can look forward with hope when we look back with awe. We can look forward with hope when we look back with awe. Again, Jesus had to go down physically in order to go up. And in our spiritual walks, there's kind of a little bit of a truth there too, which is going to become more explicit in the text. When we're down, sometimes it's impossible to think that we could possibly ever be going up. But in fact, through the eyes of faith, when we are on a downward trajectory in our lives, when things are getting difficult, when our finances are on the line when our health is on the line when things seem out of control we can nevertheless have hope because we know that while things in this world might be getting darker spiritually things are moving upward and look at the text in particular to illustrate this the words of a text are as follows his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice which speaks to their enthusiasm, does it not? Their courage, their belief, their trust with a loud voice for all. That's a word of many, not just thinking about one thing. They could recall many mighty things that Jesus had done for all the mighty works that they had seen. So let me put it to you this way. As they look at this event of Jesus, they're on one hand, praising him in the moment, but actually their praise in the moment is fueled by their history with Jesus. In other words, their now was informed by their past. Their present was influenced by their history. What are some of the mighty works of Jesus? We know that Jesus raised the dead. That's kind of significant. How many of you could claim to have done that? Zero. He healed the lame. He restored sight to the blind. He forgave sins. He provided for people's needs when they were hungry. He blessed us. He saved us from eternal damnation. He would redeem us by the blood of his own body. We can look back as these early disciples look back and then add to that 2000 more years of blessings and promises kept and encounters with God and say, man, God really has in space and in time been incredibly good to us. Think about all of the blessings that you've received from the Lord. Even in the past few weeks, Comfort, peace, provision, friendship, relationships, love, grace, opportunities. Their now was informed by their past. And your now needs to also be informed by your past. If you think about it, Christian worship is largely about praising God in the moment for the historical works of God in the past. How is it possible for us to love God in the present when we may not necessarily be feeling his love in the exact moment that we find ourselves in because we have a long past to look back on? How is it possible to praise God when it seems like we're headed down the hill and things are getting darker and darker and bleaker and bleaker when we're in one of those spiritual valleys? Well, because we have a long past. To look back on. Even in Christian worship. There's history. That informs our present. I have a book in my hand. It's called the Bible. The newest book in this book. Is 2,000 years old. So we have an old Bible. Very old Bible. That informs and affects our present. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're trying to figure out how to do that, by the way, during this lockdown. It's very challenging to do that. We haven't quite come up with a great way yet. But historically, God's people gather and they celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're looking back at what Jesus has done and we're celebrating it in the now. The past is informing our present. When we baptize, we celebrate lives being transformed in the now based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the past. We say, well, you got to live in the present. Well, not really. The present is affected and impacted by the past. All past events that give us hope, give us hope in the now. Our faith, we could say, is a living history. Sometimes we think of history, we think of like this... um, you know, alligator skin, old book made of parchment. It's all kind of dusty. We got to blow the dust off of it. You know, it's been in the closet for a long time. It's kind of irrelevant. It's just about people that lived before. It's got nothing to do with life in the present. But actually, our whole faith is historical. The reason why we come together today and celebrate what God has done is because of what God has done. Again, in the moment, you may not feel that God has you know, done a great work in your life today. You may not feel his presence in the exact moment that you find yourself in. So we look back at God's mighty deeds and we're blessed by them. Even much of our music makes historical references. Our modern music, our older Christian music, points us back to what God has done in order that we might be reminded and affected in the moment. One old song puts it this way. Faith of our fathers living still in spite of dungeon fire and sword. Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy. Whenever we hear that glorious word, faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to you till death. When we look back on God's faithfulness to our fathers and our forefathers before them, Right back to the time of Christ and beyond, it gives us hope in the moment. And then in our own short lives, we can look back on what God did for us yesterday and what God did for us the day before and what God was doing in our lives a year ago. And it affects our present, even if the present looks kind of bleak. The past always affects the present. So let's think of it this way, kind of looking at it from the opposite angle. What is fear? If you're writing a definition, a spiritual definition of fear, what would you say fear is? Fear is forgetting the past. It's forgetting God's mighty deeds, his provision, his rescue, his redemption, his promises. What is the root cause of a lack of faith? It's forgetting the past. It's taking your eyes off what God has done and what God has promised. What is apostasy? An apostate is someone who at one point believes, but no longer believes. How do you go from believing to not believing? You forget the past. You forget about what God has done. But here, these early disciples were able to rejoice because it says, as they rejoiced and praised God with a loud voice, what were they thinking about? All the mighty works that they had seen. So again, church, if you want faith in the present, We need to look forward with hope by looking back with awe at what God has done and accomplished in our lives. Hope we could say is a memory that affects the present. It's a memory of our salvation. It's a memory of the times when God has brought us through great tribulation. It's a memory when we, We're in that circumstance. We kind of came to the the end of our financial rope. We just had the two pennies to rub together and God provided mightily. I can think of time after time in my history where God has provided in ways that I would never have imagined or expected or anticipated. And that affects my ability to trust him in the present. So I ask you, what has God done in your life in the past? Now, really, I should probably stop preaching for about three hours so you could start writing out all of the things that God has done. Because each of us who's listening today should be able to come up with a rather lengthy list of things that we're thankful to God for from the past. And if that's true, and I do believe it is, why doubt him in the present? Why not trust him? Now, during these times, one of the things that um, I've been discussing with people is, is the concept of worry. And the Bible says we shouldn't worry, we shouldn't be anxious about tomorrow. And yet, you know, when, you're, when your paycheck's dried up, when you're worried about your health, you know, you have a <clears throat> little bit of a cough and suddenly you're concerned whether or not you might be sick or you're concerned for your loved ones or your relationships are on hold because of the, the shutdown. How is it possible not to worry? And the way I've tried to explain it to people is there's a difference between concern and worry. Concern, I think, really is a stewardship word. Am I concerned? Yeah, I'm concerned. On some level. I'm concerned about the things. I'm concerned about managing and responding and reacting to the things that God has placed in my stewardship. I want to steward the church well. I want to steward my Family well, I want to steward my health well, I want to steward my resources well. And I have concern that I would steward those things well because God has entrusted them to me. So, on a certain level, we should be concerned. People that aren't concerned at all probably don't understand the concept of stewardship that God has entrusted you with people, with lives, with resources to manage. But worry is very different. Worry is not a stewardship word. Worry is a doubt word. Worry creeps in when we start to question God's plans, God's provision, God's ability. And in some respects, you could say, in worry, we try to take upon ourselves responsibilities that have not been entrusted to us. In concern, we steward responsibilities that God has entrusted to us. Again, concern is a stewardship word. Worry is really a doubt word. In worry, we try to take control. How do we solve it? We put our hope in the Lord. We look back on what God has done. We trust him to continue to do what he's always done teach us, instruct us, turn the good into better, turn the bad into good. We trust him as a God who's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. Again, I want you to notice here that the hope that these early disciples expressed was loud. Is yours loud? Are you looking back? Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you being bold and audacious in your hope and in your faith? You can be and you should be if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we learn about hope is found in verse 38. Here it is in a sentence. Hope rises when we believe, when you believe, that God has invaded our world. Do you believe that? Are you a deist? You know, the kind of person that says, well, God started it all, but he's long gone. Or are you a theist? A person that says, oh, God started it, but he's still very much actively engaged and involved in the circumstances of our world. I'm a theist. And I know you are too. And we're theists because we believe in the present tense, active engagement of God in our world. As these early disciples praised God. Notice what they say. Pay attention to the words carefully in verse 38. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What name did Jesus come in? He came in the Lord's name, meaning the master's name. They attribute control to Jesus. They attribute sovereignty to, to Jesus, they understand that he comes in the name of the Lord. Who is he? He is, in fact, their king. Why do people put kings in place? Notwithstanding nasty kings and dreadful kings and horrible kings, there's been many through history that have abused their people and mishandled their sovereign trust. We understand that. Notwithstanding bad leadership. Why did early humans put kings into positions of power? Why did Israel ask for a king? Why? Well, because we have this notion that kings, that leaders comfort us. Notice some people are in times of crisis, we always say they look to leadership. If there's, if there's pandemonium, they're like, well, who's going who's gonna to represent us? Who's going to propose a solution? Who's going to redeem us? Who's going to rescue us? All cultures are like that. From the beginning of time, we have this innate understanding that we need to be led. And if there's a benevolent leader, a king, we look to that king, we look to that ruler for leadership in crisis. Well, spiritually, God is our King. Specifically, Jesus is our King, and He is always benevolent, and He is always good. He is always able to rescue us during our difficulties. And so these early disciples say, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, by the way, this language of blessed be uh, the name of the Lord is drawn, as best as we can tell, from Psalm 118. So this is not new language that uh, the gospel writer made up. This is ancient language. And if you go to Psalm 118, what's going on here is that the people of God are coming together out of the challenges of life, and they're wanting to ascend the holy hill, same as what Jesus is about to do, of Jerusalem, because they understood spiritually that's for the presence of God dwells into the old covenant. That's the place of worship. That's like the epicenter of God's manifestation of himself. So they're ascending this hill and God in the Psalm meets them at the gates. Have you ever sung some Christian songs that talk like opening up the gates and wonder what, what, where does that come from? What does that even mean? Passages like Psalm 118. So they meet God and God, Opens the gates. And then in Psalm 118 verse 23, the people of God declare, this is the king's doing. They are so thankful for this king that has opened the gates, has opened the opportunity for them to come into the holy city and worship God. They attribute this to the king. And here, these early disciples are doing the same thing. They are anticipating acceptance and peace within the holy city. And so they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And what does he offer? What does the king offer when he shows up? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you think about it, in our spiritual walks, we are called to ascend the same hill every day single day to come into the presence of the Lord and to bask in his glory and to find peace and to enjoy the peace that is only present in the presence of God. Now, when we come, are we not so grateful when those gates are opened? Because just like the ancient people, in our lives, we live our Daily routines in the doldrums of life, in the wasteland, in the wildernesses, in and among viruses and wars and spiritual attack and doubt and tribulation and trials and hardship and health challenges. And because we know that, this is life on planet earth. To be, to be able to ascend the holy hill into the presence of God. And for the king to open the gates and invite us into a place where there is perspective. And there is peace. Folks, there's no greater joy than that. And this is why I love to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is that king. He was then. And he still is now. Let me ask you, is Christ your king? And have you treated him as as such? Have you praised him for his promises? Do you believe that he's actually invaded our world and that he is present and able to help us during our times of trial and tribulation? If so, he promises you peace that you will not find in this shadowy world. This wilderness experience, the doldrums of the here and now but that you will find in the eternal presence of God. This is factual. This is true. What brings us there? Worship brings us there. Verticality brings us there. We focus on that which is eternal and stop spending all of our time and energy fixated on the discomforts of the moment, but fixating on, the hope that we have in the future. And it's his presence that alleviated their fear. And it's his presence that continue can continue to alleviate our fear. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Have you grasped that? I hope that you have. It's like gold. When you get it, never relinquish it. Studying verses 39 and 40, we find a third blessing and that is that hope overcomes the odds as these people were expressing their hope and their joy, looking back, allowing the past to inform the present. Fixing their eyes on Christ and just kind of reorienting themselves to this heavenly hope of the promises of God to come. Look what happens. Surprise, surprise. This is going to happen to you this week. Trust me. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What is that? That's opposition. If you got some hope going on, guess what? There's going to be some people that are going to come and try to take it away. The devil will try to take it away. Your own self-doubt will try to take it away. There's a lot of Pharisees running around trying to silence the people of God as they express hope into the challenges of life. But he answers them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Think about that. Hope thieves are everywhere. They're everywhere. They're working during the lockdown. They're working during your sickness. They love to steal your joy and your hope. Hope thieves are everywhere. They'll come to you with gloom and doom news and they will come at you fast and furious. Skeptics will tell you that your faith is all a lie. I saw a prominent leader recently tweet out, we just need to trust in science. Well, if we're trusting in science, how do we get ourselves here? Pretty scientifically advanced civilization, not opposed to science if properly used. My hope ain't in science to fix my problems. My hope is in the Lord. Skeptics will try to tell you it's all a lie. Hopeless believers, there are some they are just going to lose their hope. They're going to crumble. They're going to wilt. They're going to wear off on you. They'll tell you, give it up. It doesn't work. Here's what to expect in the days to come as people look back and they assess the mess that we found ourselves in. You're going to hear this. Maybe you've already heard it. God caused this. Where was God in all of this? Why did God allow this to happen? Oh, you're so super spiritual. Why don't you sit down and shut up? Tired of your optimism. Tired of your hope. Well, this is what the Pharisees were trying to get the early disciples to do. Jesus, could you tell them to shut up? Like, come off of it. It's ridiculous. And you know what God, through Christ, says to us? He essentially says, look, God will get himself glory one way or the other. And if he doesn't get it from you, then he'll get it from creation itself. But as we often say in our church, what is the mission of God? The mission of God is... Is the glory of God. If you don't give God glory, God will get glory for himself in some way, shape, or form, even if he has to get it from a stone. God will get glory for himself. And so we must continue to give it to him, no matter what the circumstances are. See, as believers... We are wired to worship. That's part of our identity. And so we choose hope. No matter what's happening around us, we choose hope. Not hope and things are awesome, but we choose hope because we have 2,000 years of proof and beyond that God is a God who stays true to his promises and loves us regardless of our circumstances. You know, March was kind of a bit of a weird month. You got the sun out, supposed to be like the warmest spring in a hundred years, like sunny. You're like, wow, this feels like late April. And then all of a sudden you're inside and it's like snowing. You go out; there's like an inch of snow in the cars and it's raining and it's it's kind of a, kind of a strange month. You never knew what to expect. You know, the sun's out and you're enjoying it. Next thing you know, there's a bunch of dark clouds kind of overhead You're not feeling so great. It's kind of yucky outside. You just want to hunker down in the house. And that's a pattern. You know, we could say that March was kind of a flippy floppy month. It just went back and forth. It couldn't decide whether it wanted to be winter or spring. Faith can be like that. You can have those bright moments, those sunny days, the joy, the peace. But you know what's going to happen inevitably? Dark clouds are going to show up, and you have a choice to make. Are you going to allow those black clouds of life to block your view of God? Or are you going to continue to worship Him whether things are bright and sunny and the birds are chirping? Or things are dark and gloomy and everything is quiet? What does Jesus do when? These men rebuke him and ask him to rebuke his disciples. He rebukes them back. He denounces them. And we must do the same. We denounce hopelessness. We denounce faithlessness. We denounce doubt in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we choose today to serve God through thick and thin through the good and the bad, through the beautiful and the ugly, because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you've ever attended a Christian funeral, Christian funerals, and I've attended many and officiated at many, are interesting. There's like this mixture of emotions because on one hand, you're mourning the passing of someone you appreciated and loved. And you're acknowledging that death is nasty and painful. But at the same time, you're filled with hope because you believe in the bodily resurrection and you believe that person will go to be or has gone to be with the Lord forever and ever. And so there's this strange mixture of loss and hope of seeing the darkness in the present, but looking forward in anticipation to greater things to come. And I experience those emotions in my own life, those kind of highs and lows, those those ups and downs. But as we mature, the downs don't go down so far and the ups tend to become more of the daily norm because we're growing in our faith and we're trusting in the Lord. I would encourage you to take your eyes off of the circumstances of life. And to focus on what God has in store for us. This is why we celebrate on Palm Sunday what is to come. Not because of Good Friday, but because we know that just past Good Friday is Easter. And just past Easter is 2,000 years of God's faithfulness to his people. So there is much for us to be thankful for. And so as we journey this week toward Good Friday... Yes, we will take time to mourn sin and what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we will equally be blessed by our knowledge that just past Good Friday is Easter. And just past Easter is 2,000 years of God's relentless favor and precious blessings and promises fulfilled to those of us that know him as our Lord and Savior. That's our hope, church. So let's embrace it today.